please turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I will read verses 26 to 31. We continue in our study of 1 Corinthians with this portion of God's Word. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And seek God's face again. Our Father and our God, we come and we have prayed for your blessing. As our brother has laid us, we have entered in and we again bow before you and acknowledge that we need your grace. We need the power of your Holy Spirit blessing the word of God to every heart. We acknowledge, Lord, that we have no native right to come to you to expect any blessing at all except that you for the sake of Jesus Christ have made promises to us you're the one who said draw near to God and he will draw near to you and so we come through the name and merits of Jesus our Lord and ask that you would be pleased to make your word to live in our hearts and enrich us with your truth from your holy word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you this morning to think about this question. What are the greatest needs of the people of God. What are the greatest things that the people of God need? Of course, we need the Word of God. The Apostle Paul is dealing, and he's, present, he's bringing them the Word of God, inspired by his Holy Spirit, and he's addressing the things that the Christians really need. There were tremendous problems in Corinth, as you are aware. There was division in in Corinth, and the, the people of God desperately needed unity. God created, God sustained unity. That's one of the great things the people of God needed because a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
the people of God needed wisdom, spiritual wisdom. And the way that Paul writes to these, uh, these Christians, uh, they were lacking. Not that they had none, but they were greatly lacking in that regard. And so the Apostle Paul presents to them what Christ provides his people, how he unifies his people, and now he provides for them the, the greatest spiritual resources that they need. And that is our hope. That is our hope. That though we may be very needy in many respects, yet God has promised to give us in the Lord Jesus Christ the things we most desperately need. So we come this this morning to the verses, the last uh, two verses that the Apostle Paul uses to deal with the matter of divisions and to correct the thinking of the people of God. The people of God in Corinth were worldly minded. They were thinking about their, uh, their meetings and their services in worldly ways. They were thinking about one another in worldly ways. And the Apostle Paul says, you must stop this. You must put aside the worldly thinking and think according to gospel grace. That's what Paul tells them. That is our need. It's our need. That's in verse 30 and verse 31. He has already told them to think about one another in a biblical manner that uh, God has chosen not the most flamboyant people, not the wisest people, not the most influential people to be his people, but he has chosen the weak things, the foolish things, the things that are weak to shame the things that are strong, etc. And then in our verses this morning, verse 30 and 31, by his doing, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Same, interestingly, the same verse he quotes here in verse 31 is what he quoted in 2 Corinthians 10, which is our scripture reading, let him boast, boast in the Lord. So this morning, as we turn to our, our text, uh, I have three points this morning. First of all, in verse 30, the beginning, Paul tells them that the credit for the Christian's present state goes to God. The, present, the credit for the Christian's present state goes to God, verse 30a. And then, in the second place, he lists some of the multiple blessings some of the most important blessings belonging to those who are united to Christ by faith. Verse 30b. Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then he repeats his pre-announced purpose. He announced the purpose of God's dealings with the people of God, the way he deals with us, is in verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. That's why God chose the method of salvation that he chose. That's why he chose the foolish things and the base things, etc. And then he repeats that 
in verse 31. Let him who boasts, this is God's purpose. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So those are our points this morning. We won't get through everything in this text. It's too much, but we will at least make a good start. So first of all, the credit for the Christian's present state goes to God. Paul reminds them, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. That's the credit for the Christian's present state. No Christian really rightly can say, well, I'm a Christian because I was very smart. I'm a Christian because I was very good. I was a Christian because I worked very hard to make myself a Christian. That's not how it happens. It universally happens that every conversion, every person who has gone from a state of sin and condemnation and been translated to the kingdom of God's Son must understand that the credit for that change goes to God. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 30. And as he says this, as he reminds the Christians of this, and you would think, well, this is, uh, this is uh, Christianity 101. Evidently, the Corinthian Christians had forgotten and needed to be reminded and reinforced in this great truth. And the way that the Apostle Paul does this, he gives us a general description of a Christian. He gives us a general description of a Christian. As he's telling us that the credit for the Christian's present converted state goes to God, he has this description of a Christian. I'll give you a second to look at the text in verse 30, the first half, and see if you can pick out a couple of words where Paul describes a Christian. Well, I won't keep you waiting. It's the phrase, in Christ Jesus. This is a general description of a Christian. It is one of the simplest and yet most profound descriptions of a believer. And I don't know if you realize it, it is one of Paul's most frequently used descriptions of a Christian. And the way that the Apostle Paul sets this out in his letters, it's also a very rich description of a Christian. A Christian is someone who is in Christ Jesus. Now you might think that this is a very simple way to describe a believer. So simple we might expect a child to understand it. But I assure you that coming to a clear and accurate understanding of this description of a Christian is not quite so easy. The word in, again, one of our simple English prepositions, and the Greek preposition is just like it, uh, in, uh, in, in is the idea of location. And location is a weighty idea, more weighty than we often think. I was uh, trying to come up with a illustration 
of how significant the word in, especially about location, how, how profound it is. And I thought about a, a place in the Philippines called Mayon, M-A-Y-O-N, Mayon. And if I said, so-and-so was in Mayon, you might not know what's going on in Mayon, but Mayon is a volcano, an actively erupting volcano. So someone who's in the vicinity of Mayon, is a, it's a profound thing. It colors his whole or her whole existence, their safety, their danger. Uh, it's described by that simple word, in. It is, a, it is this word which is used to describe the apostles in uh, Acts 5.27. They were in the council. That is, they were in the place where the Sanhedrin met, and the Sanhedrin were a hostile group intending to stop them from preaching the gospel. So in the council is a weighty truth, a weighty uh, description of those men. <clears throat> but we're talking here, Paul is describing a Christian as someone who is in Christ Jesus. And this is more than simple location. It's not so much location. The New Testament concept comes from the lips of our Lord in Acts chapter 15, and I would uh, encourage you to turn there with me for a moment, just so we get a better idea of what it is that Paul is saying about Christians, that they are in Christ Jesus. That, that is the, uh, the root description, the essential description of what makes a Christian a Christian. I'll, I'll put it this way. If you are not in Christ Jesus, you are not a Christian. You may be in City View Baptist Church, but if you're not in Christ Jesus, you are not a Christian. And though you are not in City View Baptist Church or some other church, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you are most certainly are a Christian. And here in John Chapter 15, verses 2 to 7, the Lord Jesus tells us what this idea involves. He starts out in verse 1 by identifying himself as the true vine. It's a reference back to the Old Testament scriptures where God said that he had planted a vine. He'd taken a vine from Egypt and planted it in the land. And Jesus says that he himself, as the savior of his people, is the true vine. That is the true source of life and salvation. I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Now here it is. In verse 2. John 15, 2. Every branch in me. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Again, Jesus says in verse 4, Abide in me, remain in me, and I in you. 
as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. So here, the Lord Jesus Christ is using this word, this phrase, in me. It portrays the life flowing from the Savior to his believing people. He portrays them as if they were branches in the vine. He's the branch. And there is not just a, a, a matter of location, not a matter of place. It's not just a shared environment. It's not just that the branch is somewhere near the vine. And so it is near there or it is uh, attached there in some artificial manner. But it is in Christ Jesus. It is abiding in him living in him just as the various branches of a vine had their source of life in the vine the believer is a is a branch in the vine jesus christ just as the sap flows from the vine into the branches and causes them to bear fruit jesus says that he's the vine to which believers are attached and the life flows from the vine to the branches and thus they bear fruit. And Jesus emphasizes it. How important it is to have a real, living, vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he says, you must be bearing fruit. And that fruit comes from the vine to the branches. He is the actual source of life is the actual source of fruit in the life of the believer. The Lord Jesus later in his prayer in John 17 compares this to the life of the Trinity. The life of the Trinity. There is this mutual life of the Lord Jesus Christ with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And in John 17, 21, 23, 26, Jesus says that is the kind of life which comes from Christ to the believer. So believers then spiritually live and are fruitful because of their union with Christ. Today, you, if you are a Christian, you are in Christ Jesus. You are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, and spiritually, but really. A lot of times I've been meditating. A lot, a lot of times we think of things which we don't see as less real than things which we see. You know, the pulpit here is very big. It's very uh, uh, substantial. And if I suggested that the pulpit was not real, you'd say... My brother Frank has been working too hard and, and needs a rest. But the pulpit is real. But union with Christ, you can't see it. 
It's, it, it, we don't have halos around our head to indicate that we are Christians. It's not seen, but it's real and it's true. Well, Paul makes this a frequent and fundamental concept of the Christian life. In Christ Jesus is a fundamental concept of the relationship to the believer in Christ, the saving relationship by God's doing you are in Christ Jesus. And Paul opens this up in various ways to help believers understand what this relationship is. So, Paul uses this to describe Christians at many of the letters in which he begins. I'll give you a sample of a couple of them. Uh, when Paul begins to write the letter to the Philippian church, he describes the people of God as saints in Christ Jesus. That's their fundamental identity. They belong to a particular church in a particular location, but they are saints, holy ones in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 1-2, he addresses the letter to brethren in Christ Jesus. Many of the salutations that Paul writes, uh, for example, at the end of uh, the book of Romans, makes Paul makes frequent reference to this reality. Turn for a second to Romans chapter 16, just so you have a, a visual. You see it with your own eyes in the Bible. Notice verse 7, Romans 16. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Now here, he designates them. Many things could be said about them. They shared jail cells, as it were. They are standing, but they were in Christ Jesus. You see, that's Paul's description of them as Christians. A little bit further down in verse 11, Greet Herodian, my kinsmen. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. There were probably more people in the household of, of Narcissus who were unconverted. So here he says, the ones I want you to be sure you greet, Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. That's a description, a fundamental description of a Christian. Uh, John writes this way, 1 John 5, 20. I won't turn there for time's sake. A number of other places where Paul, uh, where Paul brings this forth. It's a fundamental description of a believer. Furthermore, Paul tells us that believers are united to Christ in every condition, in every condition. Sometimes you might, you might be in a, a difficult circumstance and you might wonder about your relationship to the Lord because of your circumstances and your difficulties. But the Apostle Paul is very clear that Christians are united to Christ in every condition. Nothing can, nothing can change it. Nothing you have gone through this week, if you are a genuine Christian, nothing that you have gone through in the past, nothing that you will go through in the future 
will change your union with Christ. Think about this. And Paul describes Christians in one of those experiences which many times intimidate Christians most. Paul identifies it by their union with Christ. And what I mean is this. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul describes believers who have died. He says, the dead in Christ. And you have a beloved Christian brother or sister, maybe a mentor who has taught you much about the Christian faith, maybe someone who is used to teach you about important doctrines of the word of God. And that person passes on and along with you. You have the picture, think about them, you remember them, but what about now? What about now? Paul says they are dead in Christ. Death has not separated them. That's what Paul tells us, of course. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And nothing can separate us from Christ himself. And this is the reason why we will be raised from the dead. Because not only does our soul remain united to Jesus Christ, but our bodies, our bodies, while they are in the grave, are still united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at, say, well, I wonder, really, is that true? Are you sure? Well, look for a moment at Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. Well, back up to verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. You see, the reason why the body rises is because even the body, though it passed to a lifeless state and is put in a grave in the ground, is still united to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in, as in Adam all die, all men die, and they die because of Adam, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, all universally, without exception. All Christians will be raised from the dead by their union with Christ. Now, the Bible does teach that there is a diversity in the degree of the benefits of believers who are united to Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which we'll come to, if uh, God gives life and breath, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1, Paul tells them that these 
Christians or spiritually immature. Well, that's one of the reasons why they were so divided. But Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. They were limited in their spiritual capacities to understand the richness and the fullness of their blessings in Christ. And Paul teaches us this. Still, there is much that is true of even immature Christians, much that is true of all who are Christians who are in Christ Jesus. They are still weak in themselves. That's the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 13, 4. Of all, it may said, it may be said that they are enriched in Christ. We are enriched in all spirit, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Christ, again, there's union with Christ. It's because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of our union with him, that we are emancipated from our sins. Acts 13.39, I'll read it to you. This is one of those important places as the Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel. This is how he describes those who receive grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 13, 39, through him, that is, and, and the Greek literally is in him, not through him, but in him. Everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. In him, we are emancipated from the full consequences of our sins. There is a transformation that happens every time someone becomes united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul puts it in those very familiar words. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. So there's that rich little phrase, in Christ. The fundamental description of a Christian. In Christ we have bold, confident access. Sometimes, dear brethren, you, like me, will have a sense of the poverty of your spirit and the weakness of your graces. You feel that sometimes, right? At times when you open your Bible... And you say, well, I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying for God to teach me from the word of God. But my mind is so dull. My heart is so dull. I'm, I feel like I'm going through the motions, threading the word through my eyes. I want to have communion with God. But this is not one of those 4th of July days for me spiritually. However. Even when you feel your weakness, even when you feel your dullness, you have bold access to God in Him. That's objective. That's not limited by how you feel when you pray. You have bold, confident access in Him and real spiritual fortitude in Him. 
Well, this is what Paul teaches. The Apostle Paul thinks about this, and he says that he trusts in the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. We are told to stand fast in the Lord. Philippians 4.1 1 Thessalonians 3.8 Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Ephesians 6.10 And we are commanded to walk in Him, to conduct our life as we go from one place to another, one task to another, in conscious union with Jesus Christ. You see, what I'm trying to do is expand your idea of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. It's a fundamental description of a Christian, an essential description of a Christian. And what should we do because of this? How should we conduct ourselves? Well, I'll tell you at least one thing. This is why we are encouraged to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, says Paul. That familiar uh, text in Philippians 3.1 and Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Why? Because you are in Christ Jesus. If you are a genuine Christian, you are in Christ Jesus. And everything that we have reviewed about that is true of you, dear Christian well, that's Paul's fundamental description of a Christian. But also in our text, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says that God himself has brought this to pass. God has brought this to pass. The fundamental description, the fundamental reality about you, Christian, is that you're in Christ Jesus. And how did that happen? Once again, by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus on account of him. So the Bible is clear here. Paul is very clear. No man comes into union with Christ without evangelical repentance. That's what the Bible teaches. You must turn from your sins, repent of your sins, confess them and reject them. And exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul preached to all the people in Ephesus when he was teaching publicly, going from house to house. He was preaching repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance rejects, despises, and jettisons sin. Faith lays hold of the offered Savior full of grace and truth. But even this, can look back and say, yes, I remember the day. I remember when God by grace laid hold of me. Now, some of you can remember, but I remember meeting a Christian woman who couldn't remember. She said to me, I've never known a time. She was raised in a Christian home. I've never known a time when I did not believe in Jesus. It was a time. When she went from being a condemned sinner, destined for wrath, a child of disobedience, to a child of God, 
but you couldn't remember when that day was. And many Christians don't remember when it was. But this much is true. Whether you can remember the day and the hour when you first believed in Jesus Christ in a saving way, one thing you can be sure of, that God made the change. He made the change for the Philippian jailer in a dramatic way, remember. He made God, God shook the earth so he could shake the Philippian jailer and open his eyes to his danger and his need of Christ so that he cried out, what shall I do to be saved? And, Paul, and Silas gave him the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. But then there was the woman who was a seller of purple, Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened to receive the things spoken by Paul. Hers was a gentle conversion. His was a violent conversion, I, I could say. But whichever the case is, each of them was saved by the divine activity of God himself. This is what God does. Even when you are most conscious, and even when it's clearest to your mind, here I am, a sinner. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. So I... And casting myself upon him. I'm coming to him and I'm saying, Lord Jesus is a, a poor, needy sinner. A wretch. Addicted to sin. Unable to release myself. Oh God, save me. Very conscious of your repentance from sin and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does it happen? God is the one who has come to open your eyes and to show you your need and to work in you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is spiritual illumination and spiritual resurrection. There is a spiritual drawing. You know, Paul talks about the spiritual illumination in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, let there be light. He said, it shone into our hearts. God said, with as much power, if I may say so, as he did when he made the first light of the first day of creation, let there be light. He came to the soul and he said, let there be light in this soul. Let there be light. And that's how our eyes were opened. There was a spiritual resurrection that happened at the behest of God, at the power of God coming forth. You remember it, right? In Philippians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Uh, yeah, saying, uh, don't beat a dead horse. Well, what use is there? It's not going to do anything. Not going to improve the, the horse. The horse not going to get up. It's dead. And so were you, by nature. Dead in trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. You see God does the resurrection in the soul. God does the drawing so that Jesus can say, John 6, 44, No man can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draw him. So, that it said about every Christian, 
you were saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So who gets the credit? Who gets the credit for the change that is wrought in the lives of believers, changing them from a dead sinner to a live Christian in Christ Jesus? Well, it's very easy, isn't it? The sinner doesn't get the credit. It's interesting because there are people who think that they do get some credit. You know, I, I, was, I made a good decision. You know, I heard the preacher, and the preacher showed me that I'm bound for hell and I need Jesus. And so I raised my hand. I went forward. I prayed the prayer. Does the sinner get the credit for the decision he has made? How about the evangelist? The evangelist works very hard. He preaches very fervently. Does he get the credit? No. God alone gets the credit. And that's Paul's point. And that's one of the things that cuts the nerve of divisions about personalities. Paul does this later in 1 Corinthians. He talks about one sows, another waters. Who gives the increase? God gives the increase. That's the explanation. How a person becomes a genuine Christian. The credit for the Christian's present state, Paul says, goes to God. That's verse 38. But in the second place, Paul lists some of the multiple blessings belonging to those in Christ Jesus. In verse 30b. Notice what Paul says. After saying, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul lists some of these multiple blessings, and this is not exhaustive. It's not a comprehensive representation. There are other blessings that the Christian receives in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But Paul gives some, some of them. These underscore the vast blessedness of the believer who is in Christ Jesus. And these are blessings of, the, of a very wide scope. Blessings of a very wide scope. But let's take at least the first of them, the first of these four blessings, and consider them for a moment. What is Christ to you? What does Christ do for you? What does Christ bequeath to you? What does he give to you? How does he bless you? In many, many ways. But Paul says it's important. It's important that you know who you are, you are in Christ Jesus. You know why you are, because it's by God's doing you're in Christ Jesus. And what have you gotten? Who became to us from God wisdom. Now this is not here. Paul's not saying here, specifically, that God gives us wisdom. That's true. 
That's actually not what Paul says. He says Christ is wisdom to us. God has made to us Christ wisdom. He has made Christ wisdom to us. The wisdom has come to us in our union with Christ, and Christ is wisdom to us. Now, you might say Christ has the most wisdom. Yes, wiser than Solomon. That's true. That would be a vast understatement. He embodies wisdom. His very deity is wisdom. He's the one who opens our blinded eyes and illumines us. He is our prophet to teach us, and he continues to be our prophet throughout our existence. His, his teachings, his teachings which come to us through the apostles and through the prophets and the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that's wisdom. Everything that you learn in your Bible is wisdom which Christ imparts to you. So again, when you open your Bible tomorrow morning, you read your Bible and you see the truths which God has stored up for you there, Christ is imparting wisdom to you. And again, let me emphasize, it will not depend upon your mood. Now, you want to have the right attitude towards the Word of God. But the Word of God never loses its connection to the Savior and to God himself. So when you open your Bible there on Monday morning, Christ is wisdom to you, and he's teaching you through his Holy Spirit. You have wisdom in Christ, in his example, his example. If you want to know what godliness is, if you want to know what pleasing God is, if you want to know what serving God is, consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way Jesus calls you to, you know that. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's what Christ did. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Remember, when we were little kids, we played follow the leader. And everybody wanted to be the leader because everybody gets to set the course then. But there's, in, in the Christian life, there's only really one great leader. And we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In that sense, he is wisdom. His saving work. Reveals and imparts wisdom to his people. It's not common wisdom, nor the partial wisdom of those who have merely the language of religion. Because there is a kind of people, it, it's a little bit scary, who are always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. We want to be people who are really learning, and learning from Christ. Christ is wisdom for us. And so we read our Bibles, we read our gospel records, and we learn wisdom from Christ. We hear his teaching, we see his example, we see his exhortations, we see his warnings. They are all wisdom. And we need them. We need to digest them and pray over them. Christ is 
wisdom to us? What does this mean to us? How do we apply this? Well, brethren, one, one of the things surely is that this is intended to keep us from pride in ourselves and in our own understanding. You wouldn't be a Christian simply because of your own resources, your own wisdom, even your own spiritual upbringing. I know, I know a lot of young Christians these days. It's a, it's a wonderful privilege to be able to talk with young Christians who have a different background than myself. I was brought up in a home. It was somewhat religious, but we didn't have the gospel. And I see young people who have been brought up in a Christian home. What a great privilege it is to have Christian parents. I like to say it about my daughter, my children. Uh, and you've met Lisa. And I like to say that Lisa was brought up with the gospel, with her breakfast cereal. From the earliest time of the morning to the latest time of the evening, she had the Bible fed to her, spoon fed to her. And it's a privilege to be a Christian child in a Christian home. But you see, grace comes to us individually from God. He uses our parents, he uses our friends, our Christian friends, but there's no pride for us. And really in one sense, no pride from the useful servants of Christ. Paul could say that, and we'll come to it, the one who gets the credit, the one who gets the credit is not the sower, not the waterer, but God who causes the increase. Paul's very emphatic about it. And this is meant to keep us from pride in ourselves and our own understanding. Where does that pride come from? If it were our own, it would be worthless. If it is his by his own sovereign gift, why should we be proud of ourselves? Paul asks this question. First Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you have not received? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So, what attainments do you have? They're not worth boasting about. Let all wisdom given to the people of God be ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and I should worship and praise Him because God has made for us wisdom in Christ. And when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we get God's wisdom. So all praise to God, no credit to us. It's not how smart we are, how good we are, how hard we try. God gets the glory. Secondly, this is meant to destroy that root of pride that separates true brethren This is meant to destroy the pride that the root of pride that separates true brethren. How should we think about the members of Christ's church? How should we think about the people 
with whom we walk in the door, Flatbush Avenue, see them in the foyer, greet them, how are you, it's good to see you brother, good to see you sister. How do we think about them? Of the true believers, they are in Christ Jesus. That's who they are. They will need wholesome doctrine. They will need correction sometimes. You might say, well, this brother doesn't understand the doctrine of election. This, this sister doesn't understand the importance of this doctrine or that doctrine. Maybe you don't understand too well the doctrine of God's covenants. However, if you're in Christ Jesus, I have no right to put my thumb under my suspenses. I see, uh -huh, I understand the covenants. I'm better than you. Not at all. Not at all. We should think of Christians with great gratitude to God for them and our need for them, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is intended, you see, being in Christ, receiving grace from Christ, It should give us a high regard for our dear brethren because we are being builded together, united together. Paul reminds us of how we need our brethren, how we ought to regard our brethren. You take a brother or a sister, maybe maybe you, you think about them and you see them and you say, well, I'm not trying to be mean, but they, they aren't very gifted. They don't have many, many gifts. They don't have a lot going for them, people would say. And Paul tells us about them and the body of Christ. That the bodies which seem weaker are more necessary. Nobody can say, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. No. The, the, the weaker brethren, Paul says are more necessary and this is the way we should think of our brethren all of our brethren there should not be pride that separates us from our brethren that was what was going on at Corinth it had awful consequences it needed correction desperately and this is one of the first things Paul does in addressing the Corinthian Christians in their need. Destroy the root of pride. It separates true brethren. And finally, this morning, if you are not a Christian here, you knew I was going to come to that. No apologies for it. If you are not a Christian, you have not been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see what you need. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. What you need is something that you cannot do for yourself. One of the brethren I was speaking in a, in a telephone conversation talked about uh, this concept that used to be very popular. Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps when you got nothing else. You can always pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But there's nothing that you can do for yourself to make yourself better 
except to cast yourself on the mercy of God. Cry out for mercy. Cry out for life from Jesus Christ. And if you come to him and you say, Lord Jesus, here I am, a poor, needy sinner. Have you ever, have you ever realized how addicted you are to your sins? You say to yourself, I, I remember, I would do something bad. I would get caught and my faithful mother would give me the proper treatment for sin. She was very good at discipline. And I would be crying in my bed that evening, promising myself tomorrow is going to be a different day. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I don't know what that meant, but that's what people said. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. But the problem is that the next day I was just the same sinful boy I ever was going on in my sinful ways. Maybe that's how you find yourself. You say, I, I want to be different. I know I need to change, but I have no power. You have no power. And what you need to do is you need to look to Jesus Christ because he has the power. He has the power to change you from a sinful, sin-addicted soul to one who is in Christ Jesus. Provided with all the wisdom you need to live the Christian life from him. So I urge you, don't wait, but turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for grace and salvation. Let's pray. Amen. Our Father, we are very thankful for what you have revealed in your holy word, the things we really need to know, the most important truths you have taught us that a Christian is in Christ Jesus. We knew, Lord, but we thank you for the elements of truth which you have fastened upon our minds this morning. And you have taught us that you are the one who causes us to differ. You are the one who has changed us from our sinful, sin-addicted ways to become your people, united to Jesus Christ, supplied with every grace. And so we... We give you our thanks and we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to open men's blinded eyes, men and women, boys and girls, that they might see in the Lord Jesus Christ true eternal life and salvation. So please use your word this morning for the good of souls and get glory to your name as the Savior of sinners. We ask through Jesus our Lord. Amen.